Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke joins us as the Surrey Police Service vows to continue hiring new recruits, even though council voted to keep the RCMP. Plus, how about we forget the soap opera in Surrey and get on with it? Is it time the province moved towards a Metro Vancouver police force? And as the cold and flu season takes its toll, should BC bring back mask mandates? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Last night, Surrey City Council decided to keep the RCMP in the city, pausing the contentious transition to a municipal force. Newly elected Mayor Brenda Locke campaigned on the promise she would keep the Mounties in Surrey and was ultimately the deciding factor with a 5-4 vote in favour of retaining the RCMP. Now, Council made the decision after receiving an eight-page corporate report from city staff. The city staff will now have to send a report to Public Safety Minister and Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. The report will also need to detail how the SPS will be dismantled and the associated costs that would come from it. Now, Council's final vote means the SPS will now have to pause all spending and hiring. However, the Chief of the Surrey Police Service isn't backing down. Speaking on the Mike uh, Smith Show this morning, Lorne Lipinski says he'll continue to hire more police officers directly counter to what the Mayor has asked him to do. Take a listen. We will be moving forward with the uh, human resource plan, as was agreed upon by the three levels of government. No other level of government has told us to put the brakes on it. So uh, having said that, having said that, we will be discussing it with the uh, police board in the coming days. Now, the Surrey Police Board maintains the policing U-turn could cost taxpayers more than $180 million. A few hours ago, our Jill Bennett spoke to Melissa Granham, Executive Director of the Surrey Police Board, uh, regarding last night's council vote uh, to keep the RCMP. Take a listen. What we're working in, uh, within is an agreement uh, called the HR Plan, and that's an agreement with the Trilateral Committee, which is made up of the City of Surrey, BC, and Canada, um, and obviously the SPS and the board are involved in that as well. And that dictates the hiring cadence for SPS into Surrey from now, well, from earlier this year into the end of May of next year. And the province has said at this point that that hiring plan is still in place. And until we, like I said, until we hear differently from the province, who is um, the authority, the body of authority over the, the board, um, we, we can't make a unilateral decision and, and the city of Surrey can't direct us to do anything of the sort. That was Melissa Granham, Executive Director of the Surrey Police Board, speaking to our Joe Bennett a couple of hours ago. Joining me now to discuss last night's vote and the fast-moving nature of these, this issue is Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke. Brenda, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, well, let's just touch on uh, the issue of the moment. Uh, the Chief Constable for the Surrey Police Service, Norman Lipinski, was on with uh, our Michael Smith uh, earlier today, and he says he will continue to hire new recruits. Your response to his comments from this morning? Well, I think it is unfortunate that uh, Mr. Lipinski is going to carry on when he knows full well that uh, this has uh, come up last night. Certainly, I have asked for a meeting with the uh, board, and I am hopeful uh, our staff are uh, finding a date and a time that will 
um, that will work and will work in a very uh, short order, I'm hoping, within the next uh, day or two. And so you think that meeting will, will happen this week then? Oh, it, it, it must happen this week. They know full well uh, what the decision was last night, and that was that the city is asking the Surrey Police Board to do, uh, do the right thing, to pause new hiring and expenditures until they hear from council. After all, it is the Surrey taxpayer that pays the bills, and this is exactly where some of the problem begins with with the uh, uh, local uh, police. Uh, in regards to uh, his comments, the the chief constable is saying that look, he's answerable to the he has a human resources plan. That plan has not been altered, even though there was a vote yesterday. Until he gets word from the solicitor general, he's going to continue to do so. Are you asking him in good faith to stop uh, the, the moving forward in regards to this human resources plan? Absolutely, and. Um Mr. Lipinski knows that uh, I have spoken both to the federal and provincial governments. He knows where this is at, and so does his board. And in good faith, as as you say, it would be the responsible thing for them to do to to pause, as we said. Um, So he is is making a rather um, bold statement by saying he will ignore... Uh, the wishes of city council when he makes this move right now. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, based on my introduction here, there, there will be a report sent by city staff to the Solicitor General detailing how the SPS will be dismantled and the associated costs that would come from that. How fast will the report get to Mike Farmer's desk? You know, that's a, that's a really great question. And so what we are doing right now, so uh, now... The um, staff have been given the, uh, the go-ahead from council to uh, start that process. We will have a report coming uh, to us on the 28th of November. Um, that report will be uh, submitted to uh, the minister, but that's not necessarily going to be our final report to uh, Minister Farnworth. Certainly, uh, we will give him what we know at that point in terms of any cost implications. And we will be letting the public um, know as well as we go down this path to make sure that everybody is as informed. And this process, contrary to what has happened to date, is transparent to the public. So, sorry, when would the letter be sent, though? Well, the letter to uh, Minister, I, I will be uh, talking to the Minister about um, pausing the new hiring and expenditures in the next day, uh, just due to this past Um, this past uh, corporate report, but moving forward, we will be giving the detail to uh, Minister Farnworth. He will get the first report on the 28th, and I assume there will be a follow-up after that as well. So the hope is that even with your phone call in the next 24 to 48 hours, that that alone, uh, your conversation with the Solicitor General, would compel Mr. Lipinski to stop any potential future hiring, or at the very least, the Solicitor General passing on those remarks to Mr. Lipinski to stop any potential future hiring. Exactly. We're asking them to pause the process until this can be sorted. And I think um, it would be the right thing to do for uh, for the Surrey Police Service Board to take that under uh, consideration. I will be going to meet with them in the next, hopefully, couple of days and talking to them as the mayor of the city of Surrey. But 
uh, also, Jazz, I'm also the chair of that board. So I will also be talking to them in from that direction as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Surrey Police Service, to my understanding, says that the wind-down charges for the SPS would be about $180 million. Do you believe that number? Uh, you know, I have to tell you, I find it very interesting that there has been more information from the SPS put out in the last 48 hours than there has been in the last 48 months. So everything that you're hearing, I'm hearing in that same time frame. We have been asking, and as many of your listeners would know, I have been asking over the last number of years for some accountability on the numbers from the SPS. In fact, last year I asked them for a uh, line-by-line accounting for the first budget. They refused. Um, so it's, it's great that they're putting out uh, information to the media, but... Certainly, we will be looking to get that and then have our own CFO, our own uh, finance department here in Surrey, uh, quantify those numbers. Um, whether it's $180 million, $100 million, $120 million, um, one would argue, why spend the money? That could pay for a lot of community centres, hockey rinks, swimming pools in your community. Uh, that this project is so far gone, let it continue and save those other wind-down dollars for other projects that are much more important to your community as well. I mean, hockey rinks and swimming pools and community centers, there's never enough of them. You're absolutely right. We're a growing city, and so infrastructure is critically important. But I think that that is just what you're talking about now is the capital costs. I'm talking about the operational costs. Moving forward, we know, uh, at least preliminarily, we know that uh, the SPS is going to cost much, much more than the RCMP will to this city. And so uh, moving forward, that's the whole reason we're doing this financial um, review at this time because, Jazz, it has never been done. It has never been done in a way that uh, made sense and was accountable to the taxpayer. I've got two final questions for you. Number one, um, you are not changing your mind on this. You will... At the end of the day, you ran on uh, bringing the Surrey RCMP back or keeping it. And your goal, no matter what Mr. Lipinski says, no matter what critics say, is to wind down the Surrey Police Service. Um, Jazz, I will tell you that I have no indication from anything we've looked at, and we have had accountants look at the numbers. There is no indication to me that this is even in the long term a doable project. They have, uh, they have not met their own benchmarks, so that's a challenge. But on top of that, the cost moving forward for the Surrey Police Service is extraordinary, and this city simply cannot afford it. Final question to you, and I just don't want this to be lost. It is uh, not the subject we're talking about. But did Council last night rescind four developments that were rammed through in the final hours of Doug McCallum's time as mayor? I just want to clarify that. Did you do that last night? No, what happened uh, last night was there was a notice of motion that I read on four previous previous, uh, third readings that uh, were called back. So they will come forward to the next meeting to be voted on. They were not voted on last night. They were just given notice. All right. Well, there's lots to talk about, and I uh, look forward to having you on the show once again. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. 
Well, with the lower mainland uh, policing handled by the RCMP and municipal police forces, I don't think it's a stretch to say we have a fragmented policing system uh, in the lower mainland with gaps in information sharing. Uh, and as Surrey works through a costly back and forth, uh, between the RCMP and SPS, uh, critics have long said multiple policing agencies really are a weakness in our system, and that our balkanized structure comes out in spades during came out during uh, came out came out in spades during the uh, Picton inquiry. Now, in that case, notorious serial killer Robert Willie Picton picked up women from Vancouver's downtown east side and took them to his farm in Port Coquitlam to be killed. A failure to share information between the RCMP and Port Coquitlam and the Vancouver police allowed Picton to prey on his victims undetected. Our next guest is the Vancouver Sun columnist, uh, Ian Mulgrew. Uh, He has written a column uh, in today's Vancouver Sun that looks at a regional police force. I highly recommend uh, you pick it up, uh, take a read, Google it if uh, if you can. Uh, It's worth reading because he does uh, really look at the issue, not only the Surrey issue, but what's been transpiring in Vancouver as well. And I wanted to bring him on to talk about this because he's been a long time uh, crime and court reporter and he knows the system well. Ian, welcome to the show, my friend. Oh, hi, Ian, are you there? Oh. Hi, I am here. Sorry, Jazz. <laughs> okay, not a problem. I thought we lost you. It's always a delight to be with you to chat. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's chat a little bit about this. Now, you've covered policing in the courts, as I've said, for decades. Um, you uh, obviously haven't come to this conclusion today in regards to a regional uh, a police force, a Metro Vancouver police force. What prompted the column for you today? Well, basically the politicization of policing that we have seen over the last few years, really since police officers were allowed to unionize. In the olden days, you know, when I was young, <laughs> I came to this province a, just before Clifford Olson, Canada's first modern serial killer, began his spree in 1981. And, and he killed like 12 children and young people. And after the investigation that was decided... The RCMP and municipal patchwork quilt that we had of policing needed to be replaced. There was a coroner's inquiry, and they recommended the area move to that kind of policing because the patchwork meant people like Clifford Olson, and then later Robert Picton, who had learned from Clifford Olson, repeated the same kinds of murderous crimes. And today we still haven't gotten rid of that patchwork, even though the committee is recommending it, even though Wally Opal remembered it, uh, recommended it after a royal commission. I mean, it's got to be changed. It, it's been too long, and now all of the flaws are beginning to show because of the population increase and the number of, you know, cross-jurisdictional issues that we're facing. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the situation in Surrey, and I'll get to Vancouver in a second, the situation in Surrey specifically at this point, uh, whether it's RCMP or uh, Surrey Police Service, one could argue it doesn't really, like, it It shouldn't be going through a municipality. This should be the provincial government driving this. And what we're, what we're seeing now in, in Surrey is is just a, just the wrong way to, to sort of drive this home and to implement a municipal police force, or at least a police force that is answerable to local authorities. 
I think what's happened in Surrey is an example of what, why we need to move to a different policing structure in the province. The RCMP needs to be replaced, and so do some of our municipal departments. And we need to move to a different model, like the FBI or like Scotland Yard, where you are not getting into the police force by having a grade 12 education and a six-month training course at the Justice Institute. And, you know, we shouldn't have police forces that sort of tell us that the civilian oversight is not, not doesn't cover them, that they don't have to answer to anyone. And, and that's kind of where we've got to. I mean, we have the situation in Nova Scotia where, you know, the public inquiry um, is being run by rules dictated by the police officers who are under scrutiny. And that's crazy. And in and, and Ottawa, the inquiry into the emergency uh, declaration earlier this year is also sort of uh, running along, hearing from people saying the same sort of things, that they don't have to answer to the public. And uh, if only we understood the threats that we're, we were facing. I mean, that's what has to change. We have to start to, A, realize how much extra money this is costing the taxpayers and we have to direct that money to where we need it in uh, in our country. Um, think about how many administrations are um, needless, how many municipal departments we have in the lower mainland, how much the how, human resources, how much all of the civilian staff costs, how much the extra chief salaries and the number of you know assistant chiefs cost. It's ridiculous. Uh, the issue of the Vancouver Police Department uh, recently, they had the social safety net report that, that's come out. Uh, there's complaints as always, have as always been that, look, if we had a region-wide police force, uh, communities like Port Coquitlam, even communities like Surrey would say, wait a minute, the majority of resources go, would go into Vancouver proper and communities like Port Coquitlam or Surrey would suffer because the, the, the inertia sometimes is to, you know, spend more policing dollars in the downtown core or in and around the, the, the city core and less in, less in other um, uh, suburbs. What do you say to that argument? I say that it's invalid and not true. I think that uh, one of the reasons that many of our um, policing goals are not being met is because of the jurisdictional crossing by the gangsters and some of the other criminals that are operating. Um, if you're a policeman in Delta, a policeman in New Westminster, you, you stop at the municipal boundary. And that's a big problem in a jurisdiction like this, as it is in other metropolitan areas that have moved to the regional model. I think the regional model, which is not without its flaws, I'm not trying to suggest that this is a panacea for policing at all. I'm just saying that administratively, a, a regional model looks like it would provide better, cheaper, more effective um, policing and um, the taxpayer would uh, be, be happier. And uh, I think uh, the police, police officers could then be, uh, you know, better trained because you could set different uh, rules for hiring them. And uh, quite frankly, I think most of them should be de-armed, um, just like the British model that you have uh, 
a number of police officers during your uh, shifts who are ready to respond in various parts of the city if armed uh, response is needed. Uh, but otherwise, the uh, other officers are looked on as members of the community like the uh, Bobbies that created our model of policing, you know, 200-odd years ago. Uh, final question to you. Ultimately, this has to be driven by Victoria, not one municipality. How confident are you there is any appetite for this today and now, considering you were mentioning Clifford Olson in the early 1980s? You mentioned Robert Picton. I, I covered a lot of that in my early days as a reporter. Uh, how confident are you that we're going to get to this point where we'll have a, a regional police force? Or are we going to wait another generation or two in your mind? Um, Jack, I'm asking myself why I'm bashing my head against this wall because it's not coming down like the walls of Jericho. It's not <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> uh, police are too much a part of the political system, and they don't want this patchwork to be replaced by a regional um, structure. They don't want the current structure, which invests each officer as a kind of uh, official of the legal system, and therefore that's what makes them so hard to fire. And if we move to a non-military sort of structure, then their pensions are going to be like yours and mine, payable um, uh, down the road and not collectible, you know, the minute you retire and uh, should, wouldn't be as rich and all the rest of it. Um, a lot of the things uh, that are wrong with policing are uh, the legacy. Um, you know, to be, to be frank, uh, Canadians and immigrants and uh, European-descended people, especially from the British Isles, see a Mountie as a kind of Disney character like Dudley Do-Right. And they don't appreciate that for our indigenous people, the kind of atrocities that were carried out, when they look at the Mountie uniform and the Stetson, they see General Custer. Hmm. Ian, uh, I, I get where you're coming from. This is a, uh, this is a very interesting conversation and uh, one that I think is deeply needed uh, over and over and over again in our in, in our region here, I know Surrey uh, takes up a lot of attention, but I did want to touch on this with your experience with the police and covering a court system. Uh, I thought your column today was bang on, and it's one that we need to be having uh, really talk about over and over again. So thank you for your time today, my friend. Always a delight. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back to the show. I want to touch on home ownership. Uh, We had a press release uh, sent to us today and I think Mike Smith's show will be focusing on this particular uh, release sent by Generation Squeeze. That's the organization that talks about home ownership and how difficult it is for a younger generation to get into the housing market. Now the poll they did was conducted by Research Co. It's a well-known polling firm here uh, in Vancouver. 
Uh, and what they said in this press release, it says, this year marks half a century since the government of Canada created a home ownership tax shelter. Well, I'd kind of disagree with even the first sentence, but sentence that's me. Now, the shelter, that says, exempts increases in the value of principal residence from taxation. No other wealth windfall enjoys such favorable tax treatment. What that means in plain English is this. If you're a homeowner, the value your home increases by, well, they're saying that that should be taxed, that anybody in their principal residence, and we as Canadians, if you happen to to buy a home, let's say in 2001, you've seen your house prices probably double, if not more than that, and that increase, that value, should be taxed because it's much more difficult for uh, local folks and a younger generation to get into the housing market. And they said, based on their polling, and the question that they ask is, is do you think... um, uh, homes valued over a million dollars should p- pay a small surtax uh, when they are sold. Now, according to this release, 10% uh, of folks who own homes are own homes that are valued above $1 million. I'm sure that sounds really expensive to anybody living in Nova Scotia, but as we know, living in the lower mainland, a million dollars doesn't get you very far. Now, the poll results show that uh, 62% of Canadians support implementing a modest surtax paid by Canadians who own homes valued above $1 million. Obviously, the support is highest in Atlantic Canada. I don't know how many million-dollar-plus homes in regards to average homes there are. Saskatchewan and Manitoba, 72%. Alberta, 68%. Quebec, 66%. So the numbers are are quite interesting. Uh, uh, It also says a majority of Canadians, 55%, agree that the rise in housing wealth inequality is unfair to retirees in the prairies in Atlantic Canada. It talks about um, young people uh, being impacted uh, as well. Uh, In BC and Ontario, get this, uh, roughly 25% of households own homes valued above $1 million. So I'm getting our producers together. I want to talk about this. I said, forget the experts. We're going to, we always hear from them. Let's just talk to folks who are either entering or trying to enter the housing market and a Gen Xer like myself. Joining me now is Ryan Lee Hall, our technical producer, Stephen Chang, our uh, producer, along with Bianca Rego, who is also a producer here at CKNW. Bianca, Stephen, Ryan, welcome. Hello. 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 So, Stephen, let me start with you. First of all, what do you think of the idea of taxing somebody's principal residence uh, who want to sell their property a small surtax on that profit? Well, I think it depends on where the taxes are going to go. It says here in the poll that uh, people are, are more likely to support this tax if it pays for income tax cuts, if it leads to more affordable housing, uh, it reduces wealth inequality. So it's really conditional for me, I think, um, to where this tax money would go if we pay for it. And especially if it's a like a principal residence, I'm kind of hesitant about supporting this tax when it comes to that. If it's like a business or sorry, not a business, like if you're renting out another property that you own, sure. Okay, maybe there's a reason for that. But for a principal residence, I'm not entirely sure. I'm kind of like mm-hmm. iffy about it. But like I said earlier, it does depend on where the taxes go. Yeah. I mean, second and third properties, will you'll be paying capital gains. This is the principal residence. So this is one of those underlying debates. And sometimes they are generational. But let, let's be honest here. Millennials who got in early and buying a condominium or a townhouse have also seen the value of their homes. And some of them will be paying uh, this uh, this uh, tax on, uh, on the principal residence. Now, according to this study, it says in the mid-70s, 
It took the typical young person five years of full-time work to save a 20% down payment uh, for for an average-priced home. Now, it takes 17 years, and my guess is it's probably higher when you look at uh, uh, cities like Vancouver. Bianca, give me a sense of what it's like in the market now for housing, either as rental or buying? I mean, what's it like out there? It's really difficult. Um, As someone, as you know, who's been uh, struggling to find a residence at the moment, there are so many people who are looking for A, nice housing, and B, housing that doesn't completely break the bank, that you are up against so many different type of people and some of them who will just up the value of the apartment in order to get it. So actually succeeding, which is something I've never had to deal with, is not actually getting the apartment I apply for, is really difficult right now. And um, just on what Stephen was saying, I completely agree. It depends on if those taxes were to go to younger generations who are trying to enter the housing market. Mm -hmm. I think that would be beneficial. Um, And that's the one reason I would probably support it. Yeah, but but there's no guarantee. I mean, the challenge we have is let's say it's a million, let's just say it's a million dollars. How do you take that million dollar townhouse in the suburbs and reduce the cost down to $750,000? I'm just pulling a number out of the year. That's affordability. But how does an elected official go to uh, a homeowner who votes as elect me and I will destroy your home equity by 25%. (laughs) Just vote for me and we'll call it affordability. I mean, it, it doesn't work, does it? No, it doesn't. That's very true. But it also depends on like maybe Gen Zers, they're like getting older now. They can vote. They are. I mean, I, I still think it's a supply issue. I think we, we've got so many outdated um, uh, sort of uh, local bylaws. Yes, we've spent so much time on single family homes. We should be spending more time on different types of housing. You know, uh, David Eby's been talking about that a little bit. I think those are the areas more supply is an issue. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there are some tax issues that we can look at, but I just don't think going after uh, someone's principal residence. Yes, uh, you can live there and you can, and I'm a Gen X where I got into the housing market, was fortunate and not smarter than anybody else. Just lucky, you just got in at a, at a different time, a different era. It's very difficult now for anybody to get in, especially the single family market. Ryan, how about you? I mean, your thoughts on, uh, as a millennial, of principal residence, a tax being attached to it when you sell your principal residence that you pay that surtax? Uh, you know what? If it helps uh, people like myself, Bianca and Steven end up one day owning a home, yeah. then I'm all for it. I mean, when I really think about it, whenever we we talk about housing, I always think about when is someone like me ever going to be able to actually afford a single family home within the next five years? Probably not. 10 years? Yeah. 15? Who knows? Uh, but do you think we should redefine what a house is? I mean, a city is growing. Maybe the, and I'm not saying that to be flippant here. Maybe the single family home model is perhaps something that we should forget about now. Not because a younger generation doesn't get, doesn't deserve it. We're just a bigger city now and the single family homes isn't what a home is going to be like. I think there's some validity to that as well, but also just growing up, that's sort of what we know, yeah, right? That's what you dream of because that's how you grew up. That's how your parents grew up. You grow up to one day wanting to own a home, not necessarily um, whether it's, you know, renting or 
or even just buying a condo even that's sort of never the end goal i find especially for our generation here as well mm-hmm. uh, i i just find it funny that it, it represents it i mean it's not funny but perhaps the right word is i just find it interesting that all these canadians you know across the country are saying it's for homes for a million dollars or more it really is a vancouver and toronto tax probably more than anything else i mean uh, my problem with this and I, I looked at this and i just said you know that's that's nice but here's the reality homeowners vote and no homeowner is going to say, yeah, tax my principal residence, tax my nest egg at the end of the day. And a younger generation may not like that, but I can see this not occurring. Like, I remember we did a segment, um, thinking back now, maybe six months ago, on the homeowners grant, which was launched by our provincial governor, under W.A.C. Bennett, a premier from a different era. And basically, you get a small um, payback in regards to when you pay your property taxes. You get four, five, six, seven hundred, four, five hundred dollars, I believe. I happened to bring this up about six months ago. I think it's lousy policy. There's no way homeowners who can who can afford a home should get a four or five hundred dollars subsidy on the property tax. There's lots of renters out there. Perhaps uh, reduce the threshold. Perhaps include senior citizens so they're not impacted. But it's ridiculous for homeowners like myself to get that subsidy. I'll be the first one to say that. Uh, and that's his bad policy, but they're not getting rid of it. You know why? Because homeowners would be not rioting, but they sure would be protesting outside the legislature. Ain't going to happen anytime soon. So that's a bad, a great, an ex- excellent case, in my personal opinion, of really, really bad policy that remains popular. And this one, this particular recommendation here for taxing people and their principal residence and their profit, it ain't going to fly. That's just my, my two cents. Um, overall, Bianca, I want to go to you here. Um, do you have any aspirations to live in a single family home or would you prefer uh, in, the, you know, in you know, places like Europe and Asia where you get a two or three bedroom flat and that is your house? As someone who did live in Hong Kong, like yeah. I would love to live there, but I can't right now. Um, I've always wanted to own a home. As Ryan was saying, it's just something you dream of because it's something that your parents did. And that's something you've always aspired to do. But in this day and age and in this economy, like how are you ever going to do that <laughs> if I can't even find an apartment to rent, you know? Yeah. It's just, it's it's wild out there. Yeah, it, it is. And the reason I want to talk to you guys about this is I understand that it might help. But, man, I don't know how you pass this through uh, any legislature, uh, provincial or federal. Uh, and I don't care what this poll says. Uh, it could be 30 percent. Those 30 percent all vote and they will not allow their nest eggs to be taxed. My two cents, maybe I'm old, maybe I'm out of touch. Maybe <laughs> you don't agree with me, but I think that's where we're at right now. But it is as the generations move on, maybe something we'll be looking at. Thanks, guys. No, but young and broke. Thank you. Thanks, Jazz. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, having been in on the political side, I got to tell you, they're going to look at this. Go, this is nice. Any elected official, they go, well, great. What am I going to do? Tax the baby boomer? They're going to do that. A Gen Xer or millennials who also own as well. So it's not just the boomers, folks. Uh, Ryan, Steve, and Bianca, thank you so much. Well, I think all of us uh, have heard of Top Chef Canada. It is a Canadian reality competition television series. And it is considered one of the most prestigious culinary competitions in Canada. Now, the show premiered in April of 2011 on the Food Network here in Canada. This season marked its milestone 10th season. And this time, the cutthroat competition saw 11 contestants compete in a high-pressure quick-fire challenges for the grand prize of 100 
thousand dollars. Now, last night during the season finale, Ontario-based chef Trey Sanderson was the sole chef standing atop the proverbial Top Chef Canada podium. Take a listen. Trey, you are Canada's top chef. Oh, <laughs> let's go, baby! Canada's chef. <laughs> let's go, baby. Well, Trey Sanderson joins us now. Trey, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. This is this is a great opportunity, uh, great vibe. Let's go. Let's get it. Uh, what's it like to win? the title for Canada's Top Chef. Give me a sense of what went through your mind, your heart, when when that was announced. You know, winning, when they said I won and I'm Canada's Top Chef, my heart dropped. I had so much flashbacks from different restaurant experiences and, you know, what I've gone through over the last 10 years as a, as a chef, as a cook. It's been rough. It's been hard. You know, nothing was given to me. Everything was earned, not given. So when they said, you know, I was the, the Canada's top chef, I was like, man, this is the best, one of the best films in the world. You know, greatness. Correct me if I'm wrong. In the show itself, you had to put together a five-course menu to sort of, sort of reflect who you are uh, in the finale. Um, what was the thinking in your mind in regards to coming up with that that menu? For me, I'm trying to push Jamaican cuisine. So coming up with this menu was like kind of child classics, um, different food, different ingredients that inspired me along the way. And yeah, showcasing it on a high level and a platform like Top Chef Canada. Talk to me a little bit about what it was like for you in the early days um, in, in regards to working in restaurants, you know, deciding whether you wanted to pursue a career as, as, a, as, a, as a chef. What was that like those early years? For me, it was a lot of, do I want to do this? But there was a lot of, I love what I do, and I can't just leave it now. I'm ready five years in. I'm so invested into this craft, this industry. I can't quit now. So, you know, for me, it was just keep pushing and pushing and pushing until I got to a point where it's like, this is what I would love to do. This is what I came to do. And, yeah, just for me, I've been, this is the only kind of job I had was kitchen. So, for me, this is my calling. Mm-hmm. And did you, from a very young age, want to be a chef, or is this something you sort of, you know, really researched and thought, okay, this would be something I'd be interested in? Honestly, my my love for cooking kind of came, um, you know, beginning of high school, um, just kind of cooking like random dishes on the on the fly, on the go, um, and then like enrolling myself in uh, in the hospitality program we had at my high school, which was like teaching us the basics and the foundation. Of, of cooking and from there it just kind of skyrocketed and then started my career from there mm-hmm. um, you're a first generation Canadian of uh, Jamaican heritage um, what role does that play in in if, for you as a chef does that um, I mean does that impact how you cook or what you want to cook growing up like, Jamaican food was always on the table for us so that's kind of my introduction to food in general. So it, it played a big part in my culinary story and in my culinary uh, career. Um, of the food that I got brought, I brought up eating um, you know, inspired me to be the chef that I am today. Uh, I'm very curious, um, you know, Toronto not too long ago uh, uh, had restaurants named uh, or given the Michelin star. Vancouver recently had the same. 
uh, in lots of great uh, restaurants in Toronto and Vancouver, across Canada. What do you think is the reason why we have such a rise in, in sort of food culture, foodie culture? Uh, you know, 20 years ago, it was a completely different sort of mindset. We still had great restaurants, but now um, there just seems to be a much more uh, a greater interest in food and new restaurants. It doesn't have to be high-end. It can be cheaper stuff as well. What do you think is causing this sort of interest in, in, in food and food culture? I think it's an experience thing um, and and making kind of or trying different cuisines from around the world. You know, Toronto's so diverse. It doesn't have a... A, a certain cuisine that we you know stand by. So you know you come to Toronto, you're you're gonna get your your good Mexican food or your good Italian food, uh, some good French food. You know it's it's very diverse in in its approach in the culinary industry. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, Trey, uh, I saw the uh, episode, the final episode. Uh, I do want to say to you, congratulations <laughs> to Thank to go from so all those all, to all those contestants and then to to win. Really does take a lot of imagination, talent, and heart. And uh, I congratulate you uh, and all the best to you in in future endeavors as well. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.